Uh, it's my privilege this morning to uh, bring you the Word of God. And uh, as, as I think of this church and uh, the blessing that it's been to my life, I, I think of uh, coming here in second grade, uh, growing up in this church, um, and it's, it's a privilege to preach my first sermon here. So um, thank you for raising me. Thanks, Mom, for raising me. <laughs> Shout out from Mother's Day for all you moms. But uh, there we go. But anyways, I, when I look at Hamilton Baptist Church, I, I go, I've been into probably about 50 churches in my three years. And honestly, there are, there are few churches that I can say have such a passion for missions, a passion for, to get the gospel to the nations. Uh, it's, it's a testament to the grace of God. And so I, I thank you for that. So if you open uh, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, it's in page uh, 1015 in your pew Bible. Here we have uh, Peter uh, proclaiming to the persecuted church. He starts out in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege it is uh, to hear from you, uh, to hear your heart for the church, to hear your heart for the lost. And God, I pray that that would permeate our minds. God, that we would, we would long for, uh, for your glory to be proclaimed in the church and, and in the nations. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In my ministry, I, I see many Christians. I see many churches. I see many pastors. And uh, oftentimes in my ministry, I see my own life. The, the message of revival is a message of repentance. And, and with that comes a, a recognition uh, of sin. And so as I've seen the church, as I've seen my own life, and, I, and I've looked through Scripture, I look from Genesis all the way to the maps, and I see the, the one thing that permeates all of Scripture is, is the infinite glory of God. And, and unfortunately, in my life, often in, in the church's life, it, the glory of God is, is not central. And so it's been my prayer over, over the past months that I would be obsessed with the glory of God. It's my prayer that Hamilton Baptist Church would be obsessed with the glory of God. And I believe that, that Peter here in this scripture is, is showing us why we, we should be obsessed with the glory of God. Now, 1 Peter was written, obviously, by the Apostle Peter uh, to the persecuted church in northern Asia Minor, right below the Black Sea. They were experiencing persecution as a result of the Roman government. Um, uh, We're not sure exactly who the emperor was at the time, perhaps Nero. But the important thing that we need to know is is that this scripture, this uh, this entire book, was written to encourage the believers uh, in the midst of persecution uh, to 
to trust God in the midst of suffering and to obey God in the midst of suffering. And, and in, starting in verse 1, uh, in chapter 1, all the way to verse 10, in chapter 2, Peter develops a, a theology that he then brings to practical application in the, in the later parts of the book. Uh, through his, his development of this theology, he, he builds his argument for submission to authority, the roles of a husband and a wife, how to suffer well, instruction for the elders, and instruction for the young. And so as we, as we start in verse 9, we see that, that, that Peter is, is now c- concluding uh, this theological discourse. And, and to start it out, he says, but you. And now, now this is in, in contrast to what he's saying in the earlier verses, comparing the church, that's the you here, to, to those who have rejected Christ, who have rejected Christ as the chief cornerstone, who, who have disobeyed the word. And so, so we, are, we are contrasted with the world. And he says, but you are a chosen race. You, Christian, have, have been chosen by God to be a recipient of his grace. Now, there's a, there's a lot of theological implications that we can go into in, in this passage, but I, I think the point that I, that I would love to get across, that I think Peter is getting across, is that God so loves you that, that he has chosen you. It reminds us of the people of Israel in, in Deuteronomy, when, when God says, it was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love for you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It's because the Lord loves you, because the Lord loves his bride, that, that he has, has chosen us to be a recipient of his grace. And this, this re- receptivity of, of his love compels us to love the Father. And as we love the Father, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It, it's a, the love that we have towards the Father demands obedience. And so as, as we see the graciousness of, of the choosing of God, of, of us as, as a chosen race, Peter continues, he says, we are a royal priesthood. We, we share in the privileges of Christ. Christ, as, as the great high priest, has, has given us his privileges, his access to the Father. Here, here he's, he's saying that we are a royal priesthood. Now, obviously, Peter grew up as, as, a, as a Jew, and so he has, has many things to understand about uh, what it looks like to be a priest. And so I think it's important for us to understand that as well. If, we, if I was to give a, a simple definition of, of what a priest looked like in the Old Testament, uh, there, there would be two things. First, the priest represented God to the people, and he represented the people to God. That's the simplest way I can put uh, the priesthood. But anyways, the, the priests of the Old Testament were holy anointed for God to the ministry of his people. And they, they were separated. They were, they were consecrated to God. And because, because God is so holy, he, he must have a consecrated people serving him. And so they, they showed both Israel and the nations the holiness of God. And here Peter is saying that, that just as, as the priests in the Old Testament, we are now priests unto God. We are the royal priesthood. It, it is now our job as priests to, to proclaim the holiness of God, to proclaim the worthiness of Christ. And, and as, as priests, we no longer wear the priestly garments, the material priestly garments that, that the Old Testament priests wore, but we now wear the, the heavenly garments that, that are Christ. We wear Christ himself. And, and 
I think Peter is, is getting across here. Do you, do you not see how beautiful this is? He's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. The fact that Gentiles, that non-Levitical Jews could become priests is, is unprecedented. This is, this, is a, this is under the New Covenant. And, and we now have the same communion with the Father because of what Jesus has done. Now, Peter continues on. He, he, he doesn't stop at royal priesthood. He says, you are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, this, this is getting across the, the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are, are, now, are now one. They no longer is a nation determined by geography or ethnicity, but, but rather by the unity that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says that we are a people of his own possession. I, I so appreciate what uh, Pastor C- Stephen has been speaking on most recently on, on prayer and how we are to pray to our Father. And, and as we pray to our Father, he, he loves us so much and, and he, he longs to hear from us. And I think that's what uh, Peter is getting across here, that, that we are now possessed by God. We, we, we are possessed by the Father because of His love toward us. And it, that should bring us to thanks that we, that we have this loving Father who, who now we are in His arms. Imagine the encouragement that this would bring to the persecuted church to know that God possesses them, that He is carrying them in His arms. And so after establishing who we are as the church and, and developing this theological framework, Peter says, uh, Peter shows us the purpose of all this. It is simply to proclaim the glory of God. Peter says we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now, when I, when I first was studying this passage, I, I was first understanding this as a missional proclamation of the glory of God. But as, as I studied it further, I realized that it's so much more than that. That, yes, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Christ for the, for the sake of the nations, but we're also to proclaim it simply because of who God is. You look at the Psalms, and the word that Peter uses when he says that, that we're proclaiming, that we're declaring God in the Psalms. It's not just restricted to proclaiming to the lost, but rather it's, it's proclaiming who God is in all circumstances, uh, whether it be in the church, uh, whether it be in your workplace, or in the prayer closet, or toward the lost. And so, so don't, don't strictly view the, the proclamation of the excellencies of God in view of, of missions, but view it in, in view of who God is. Now, Peter says that, that we are proclaiming the excellencies of God. This word excellencies means the worthiness of approval and praise. We are to proclaim the worthiness of God, the worthiness of, of Christ. We're to echo with, with, with the scene in heaven in Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. And it is because of, of God calling us out of the darkness and into marvelous light that we can proclaim these excellencies. And it begins to form our thinking. Perhaps redemption is not so man-focused as, as we often make it, but rather God-centered. The redemption of man is for God, that God might be glorified. 
Peter goes on to say, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had received mercy, uh, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's developing the, the basis for the praises of the excellencies of God. I, I think of, of the, the mercy that God has bestowed on me the, in the midst of my sin. In the, when I was once dead in sin, God, God brought me to, to faith in His Son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and all of us Christians have, have that, that moment where we first receive mercy. And, and it brings us to praise God for what He has done in our heart, what He has done in our life. And obviously the, the converse of that is if you have not received mercy, then you have no reason, there's no, you won't desire to proclaim the excellencies of God. You haven't experienced it. I, I, think, of, I think of the many in the church who, who have, have yet to actually experience this saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's why the church is so ineffective in missions. Because we haven't truly experienced the mercy of God. And perhaps there's a, there's a person in here this morning, I, I know there is, that has yet to receive the mercy of God. Well, let me tell you, the mercy of God has been revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ in His coming, in His sinless life, in His perfect death, and in His resurrection, so that we might be justified before God. And if if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus says, believe and repent in the gospel. And as you do that, you will be a recipient of the mercy of God. And, and from that point on, you will, you will be declaring the glories of God. I, I think of, of people who, who hear of the glory of God and are obsession with it. And just the, the confusion that causes. Like, why, why is this God so, so obsessed with his glory? Why, why, is he so, why does he seek after glory so much? And my response is, obviously you don't know my father. For he is, he is worthy of all praise. Now, in verse 11, uh, Peter, Peter begins more of the practical application. He says, Beloved, I urge you. That, that word urge, I think in, in, the, in the original, it, it, it's so much more than, than urging. It's a, it's a literal begging of those whom he loves. Peter is, is saying, I, I beg of you, those whom I love, as sojourners and exiles. Now these words, sojourners and exiles, capture the heart of what he's going to say. As a sojourner and exile, Peter is saying that you are now uh, citizens of heaven. And as you are citizens of heaven, the, the, the sin that you involve yourself in is contrary to that. It's contrary to, to the nature of, of where you actually are in residence in the future. And he's saying the passions of the flesh are contrary to the citizenship. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are these passions of the flesh? Well, I think Galatians 5 is a great place to start. Paul says that the works of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. And he goes on. And he says, and these and things like these. I don't think it's restricted to what's in Galatians 5. I believe Peter is telling us that we need to be desperate to do and avoid anything that is contrary to the will of God. And he's using this present sense, this present tense, to show us that this is not a one-time thing. He's, he's saying to continue to abstain from the passions of the flesh, from the desire of sin. Now this goes far contrary to our culture. 
Our culture continues to tell us that desire is either neutral or always positive. Do not be deceived. Our, our sin nature and, and desire for sin is, needs to be eliminated from our minds. And, and we need to be so reliant on the Spirit of God to eliminate that desire from our heart. That, but we need to be desperate, crying out to God, Oh God, fill me with your Spirit that I might, that I might reject and I might abstain from these passions of the flesh. Because he says, these passions of the flesh, they wage war against your soul. These, these passions are making you weak and ineffective for the kingdom of God. So we, we need to do all that we can. We need to do all that we can to abstain from these passions. Now, it's interesting to note, um, in, in verse 12, the end of verse 11, uh, there, there are two sentences there. There's verse 11, one sentence, verse 12, another sentence. In, in the original, that's actually all one, one sentence. And, and so, in verse 11, you have what we're to avoid. But in verse 12, you have what we're to put on. So put off, put on type stuff. And um, in, in verse 12, he's, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, now Peter is saying here that your day-to-day life, keep your life honorable. Keep on keeping on your life honorable honorable before the Gentiles. For that is how the glory of God is displayed. The glory of God is displayed through our obedience to the Father. But as we obey the Father, as we keep our our conduct honorable, it says that they will speak against you as evildoers. And and how how true, especially to this audience, that that those around them were, were saying hateful things, not only saying, but doing hateful things to them because they were preaching truth, because they believed truth. Because the path of righteousness is a path towards suffering and persecution. We're told in 2 Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus tells us, however, that blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and under all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. You see, Jesus is saying that to be persecuted is to be blessed. But not only that, and and this is the beauty of of God and the beauty of the gospel. Peter is saying that even though these people are speaking against you and by by persecuting you are blessing you, in the end, some of them will be blessed as a result of their persecution towards you. He's saying that in the midst of of these people persecuting you, and in the midst of your obedience to the Father, uh, that that these people, that the Gentiles, that the lost, will see the glories of God. They will see how how you respond to to their hateful words, to to their acts of violence towards you. And we as American Christians are so terrible at taking the persecution that comes at us. And so I... I ask that, that we would begin to, to tap into the, to the Spirit of God, that, that He would give us the grace to take on persecution well, so that we might represent God well. And so that brings us to our last point, that the redemption of the lost is for the glory of God. Now here in this verse, Peter uses the word Gentiles to describe the lost. I don't want us to get hung up on that word. But also... The, the, very, the fi- very final phrase in this verse, it says, on the day of visitation. 
Now, that definite article, the, uh, before day of visitation, actually was not originally there. And I believe, um, after studying this and uh, after hearing the, the words of other theologians, that the day of visitation gives us a false idea of, of what Peter is talking about. He's not talking about some, some day in the future when, when the lost are judged at the great white throne. But rather, he's talking about a day of visitation or their day of visitation. The day of visitation for the individual Gentile. The moment when God so visits them to give them the faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so... And so what he's saying is, is that they, meaning the lost, are going to see your deeds, your good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. So by seeing your deeds, the lost will eventually be saved. Some of them will be saved. Now notice who the recipient of the glory is in this passage. It's God. That, that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. I, I look at verse 12, and I, say, I see so many references to the word you. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The, the implications here is that, that the impression the lost gets of God is reliant on the church. If, if we are obedient to the Father, if we walk in righteousness, then they, in turn, will glorify the Father. They, they will come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the glory of the Father is, is dependent on, on the, the, the lost coming to, to Jesus in glorifying God in their salvation. Now, as, as I think about all of this, that, that the church exists for the glory of God, and that in our obedience... We, we give the world a right opinion of God. We, we show the world who God is. And as a result, the lost uh, come to a saving knowledge and, and glorify God as a result of that. It makes me wonder how, how we respond. Well, we say, you know, we want to glorify God. But do we really? When, 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 the, when, the, when God's glorification is reliant on the evangelization of the nations, oftentimes we just sit back. We sit back uh, clenching our wallets, sitting in our nice homes, our nice cars, not, not concerned about the glory of God. Why are we not doing all that we can to evangelize the nations? Because if, if the glory of God is our chief end, our chief goal... Then, then the evangelization of the nations will, will be one of those ways that God can receive glory. And so, so we, need to, we need to understand that by not evangelizing the nations, by, by not going, by not praying, by not giving, we are robbing God of His glory. We, we, are, we, are, we are not giving God the glory that is due His name from the nations. It makes me think of of the, the Southern Baptists and how, how wealthy we are. Uh, the, one of the richest denominations in the world. And, and yet, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that we can't afford to send our inter- International Mission Board missionaries. And we're having to bring 600 to 800 of them home. Shame on us 
for, for not putting the glory of God first and foremost in the evangelization of the nations. And so my prayer for Hamilton Baptist Church, and I hope, my, and I hope your prayer for your own heart, is that you would be obsessed with the glory of God. That, that, that the glory of God would be on display in your life, in your home, in, in the way you give, in the way you go. That, that Hamilton Baptist Church would be known for evangelizing the nations for the sake of the glory of God. For that is our chief end. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that, that you are worthy of all glory, worthy of all praise. And God, I, I pray that that would be the longing of our heart. That, that all nations would come to glorify you as a result of their day of visitation. And God, may we do all that we can, all that we can, may, may your grace abound so that, so that we can give, so that we can go, so that we can serve in a way that the nations can hear of you. And Lord, we pray these things knowing that it is your will. And so we're confident that you will answer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We invite you to stand, please, as we join in singing freely.